Welcome to Volume 4 of The Mating Season. Chapter 7 Well, I suppose if I had been a seigneur of the Middle Ages, somebody like Child Roland, for instance, in the day when you couldn't throw a brick without beating a magician or a wizard or a sorcerer, and people were always getting changed into something else, I wouldn't have given the thing a second thought. I would have just said, Ah, so Jesus had a spell cast on him, and it's been turned into cat's meat, has he? Too bad. Still, that's life. And carried on regardless, calling on my pipe and my boat and my fiddlers three. But nowadays, you tend to lose this easy outlook, and it would be willfully deceiving my public to say I did not take it big. I stared at the man, my eyes coming out of the parent sockets like a snail's, and waving about on their stems. Cat's meat, I yipped. He waggled his head frowningly, like a conspirator when a fellow conspirator said the wrong thing. Meadows. He corrected. What do you mean, Meadows? That is my name while I remain in your employment. I'm your man. A solution occurred to me. I've already mentioned that the port, which I had swigged perhaps a little too freely in Esmond Haddock's society, was of a fine old vintage and full of body. It now struck me that it must have had even more authority than I supposed, and that Dame Daphne Winkworth had been perfectly correct in assuming that I was scrooched, and I was about to turn my face to the wall and try to sleep it off when he proceeded. Your valet, your attendant, your gentleman's personal gentleman. It's quite simple. Jeeves couldn't come. What? No. You mean Jeeves isn't going to be at my side? That's right. So I am taking his place. What are you doing? Turning my face to the wall. Why? Well, wouldn't you turn your face to the wall if you were trapped in a place like this, with everybody thinking you were Gussie Finknoddle, and without Jeeves to comfort and advise? Hell! Blast! Damn! Why couldn't Jeeves come? Is he ill? I don't think so. I speak only as a layman, of course, not as a medical man. The last I saw of him, he seemed pretty full of vitamins. Sparkling eyes, rosy cheeks. No, Jeeves isn't ill. What stopped him coming was the fact that his Uncle Charlie is the butler here. Why the devil should that stop him? My good Bertie, use your intelligence, if any. Uncle Charlie knows that Jeeves is your keeper. No doubt Jeeves writes him weekly letters, saying how happy he is with you and how nothing would ever induce him to switch elsewhere. Well... What would happen if he suddenly showed up in attendance on Gussie Finknoddle? I'll tell you what would happen. Uncle Charlie's suspicions would be aroused. Something fishy here, he would say to himself. And before you knew where you were, he would be tearing off your whiskers and denouncing you. Obviously, Jeeves couldn't come. I was forced to admit there was something in this. But still I chafed. Why didn't he tell me? It only occurred to him after you left. And why couldn't he have squared this with Silversmith? That point came up when we were discussing the thing, and Jeeves said his Uncle Charlie was one of those fellows who can't be squared, a man of very rigid principles. Every man has his price. Not Jeeves's Uncle Charlie. My gosh, Bertie, what a lad. He received me when I arrived and my bones turned to water. Do you remember the effect King Solomon had on the Queen of Sheba at their first meeting? My reactions were somewhat similar. The half was not told unto me, I said to myself. If it hadn't been for Queenie leading me from the presence and buoying me up with a quick cooking sherry, I might have swooned in my tracks. Who's Queenie? Haven't you met her? The parlour maid. Delightful girl. Engaged to the village policeman, a fellow named Dobbs. Have you ever tasted cooking sherry, Bertie? Very odd stuff. I felt that we were wandering from the knob. This was no time for desultory chit-chat about cooking sherry. But look here, dash it. I can understand Jesus' reasons for backing out, but I can't see why you had to come. He raised a couple of eyebrows. You can't see why I had to come. Didn't you yourself say with your own lips when we were discussing the idea of me understudying Gussie that this was the one place where I ought to be? It's vital that I should be on the spot, seeing Gertrude constantly, Pleading with her, reasoning with her, trying to break down her sales resistance. He paused and gave me a penetrating look. You've nothing against my being here, have you? 
Well, so, he said, and his voice was cold and hard, like a picnic egg. You have some far-fetched objection to the scheme, have you? You don't want me to win the girl I love? Of course I want you to win the body girl you love. Well, I can't do it by mail. But I don't see why you've got to be here at the hall. Why couldn't you have stayed at the vicarage? You couldn't expect Uncle Sidney to have Corky and me on the premises. The mixture would be too rich. At the inn, then? There isn't an inn. Only what they call beer houses. You could have got a bed at a cottage. And shared it with a cottager? No, thanks. How many beds do you think these birds have? I relapsed into baffled silence. But it's never any good repining on these occasions. When I next spoke, I doubt if Catsmeat spotted the suspicion of tremor in my voice. We Worcesters are like that. In moments of mental anguish, we resemble those red Indians, who, while getting cooked to a crisp at the stake, never fail to be the life and soul of the party. Have you seen her? I asked. Gertrude? Yes, just before I came up here. I was in the hall, and she suddenly appeared from the drawing room. I suppose she was surprised. Surprised is right. She swayed and tottered. Queenie said, Oh, miss, are you ill? And rushed off to get Saul Volatile. Oh, Queenie was there. Yes, Queenie was there with her hair in a braid. She had just been telling me how worried she was about her betrothed spiritual outlook. He's an atheist. So Corky told me. And every time she tries to make him see the light, he just twirls his moustache and talks Ingersoll at her. This upsets the poor girl. She's very pretty. Extraordinarily pretty. I don't remember ever having seen a prettier parlour maid. Gertrude, not Queenie. Oh, Gertrude, well, dash it. You don't need to tell me that. She's the top. She begins where Helen of Troy left off. Did you get a chance to talk to her? Unfortunately, no. A couple of ants came out of the drawing room and I had to leg it. That's the trouble about being a valet. You can't mix. By the way, Bertie, I found out something of the utmost importance. That lover's leap binge is fixed for next Thursday. Queenie told me. She's cutting the sandwiches. I hope you haven't weakened. You're still in your splendid, resolute frame of mind of yesterday. I can rely on you to foil and baffle that foul blot, Esmond Haddock. I like Esmond Haddock. Then you ought to be ashamed of yourself. I smiled an indulgent smile. It's all right, Catsmeat. You can simmer down. Gertrude Winkworth means nothing to Esmond Haddock. He's not really pursuing her with his addresses. Don't be an ass. How about the lover's leap? What price the sandwiches? Ah, all that stuff is just to make Corky jealous. What? He thinks it will bring her round, you see. He didn't give Corky the brush off. You had your facts twisted. She gave him the brush off, because they had differed on a point of policy. She's still the lodestar of his life. I had this from his own lips. We got matey over port, so you can cease to regard him as a menace. He gaped at me. You could see the beginning of the dawn. Is this official? Absolutely. You say Corky is the lodestar of his life. That's what he told me. And all this rushing Gertrude is just a ruse? That's right. Catsmeat expelled a deep breath. It sounded like the final effort of a dying rooster. My gosh, you've taken a weight off my mind. I thought you'd be pleased. You bet I'm pleased. Well, good night. You're off? Yes, I shall leave you now, Bertie. Much as I enjoy your society, I have man's work to do elsewhere. When I was chatting with Queenie, she happened to mention that she knows where Uncle Charlie keeps the key to the cellar. So long. I hope to see more of you later. Just a second. Will you be seeing Corky shortly? First thing tomorrow morning. I must let her know I'm here and put her in touch with the general situation so that she will be warned against making any floaters. Why? Tell her from me that she has got to find somebody else for Pat. You're walking out on the act? Yes, I am, I said, and put him abreast. He listened intelligently and said he quite understood. I see. Yes, I think you're right. I'll tell her. He withdrew, walking on the tips of his toes and conveying in his manner the suggestion that if he had had a hat and that hat had contained roses, he would have started strewing them from it. 
and for a while the thought that I had been instrumental in re-sunshining a pale's life bucked me up no little. But it takes more than that to buck a fellow up permanently, who was serving an indeterminate sentence in a place like Deverell Hall. And it was not long before I was in a sombre mood again, trying to find the bluebird but missing it by a wide margin. I have generally found on these occasions when the heart is heavy that the best thing to do is curl up with a good goose flesher and try to forget. And fortunately I had packed among my effects one called Murder at Greystone Grange. I started to turn pages now and find I couldn't have made a sound of move. It was one of those works in which baronets are constantly being discovered dead in libraries, and the heroine can't turn in for a night without a thing popping through a panel in the wall of her bedroom and starting to chuck its weight around. And it was not long before I was soothed that I was able to switch off the light and fall into a refreshing sleep, which lasted, as my refreshing sleeps always do, till the coming of the morning cup of tea. My last thought, just before the tired eyelids closed, was that I had had an idea that I heard the front doorbell ring and a murmur of distant voices, seeming to indicate the blowing in of another guest. It was Silversmith who brought me my tea ration, and though his manner on the chilly side suggested that the overnight activities of Sam Goldwyn still rankled, I had a dash of setting the conversational ball rolling, I always like, if I can, to establish matey relations between tea-bringer and tea-recipient. Hell, good morning, Silversmith. Good morning, I said. What sort of day is it, Silversmith? Fine? Yes, sir. The lark on the wing and the snail on the thorn and all that? Yes, sir. Splendid. Oh, Silversmith, I said. I don't know if it was but a dream, but latish last night I fancied I heard the front doorbell doing its stuff and a good lot of offstage talking going on. Was I right? Did someone arrive after closing time? Yes, sir. Mr. Worcester. He gave me a cold look, as if to remind me that he would prefer not to be drawn into conversation with the man responsible for introducing Sam Goldwyn into his life, and vanished, leaving not a rack behind. And it was, as you may well imagine, a pensive Bertram, with a puzzled frown on his face, who propped himself against the pillows and sipped from the teacup. I can make nothing of this. Mr. Worcester, the man had said, and only two explanations seemed to offer themselves. A, that like the fellows in the train at Wembley, I had not heard correctly, or B, that I had recently been in the presence of a butler who had been having a couple. Neither theory satisfied me. From boyhood up, my hearing has always been of the keenest, and as for the possibility of Silversmith having had one over the eight, I dismissed that instanter. It is a very frivolous butler who gets a load before nine in the morning, and I have gone sadly astray in my delineation of character if I have given my public the impression that Jeeves's Uncle Charlie was frivolous. You could imagine little Lord Fauntleroy getting a skinful, but not Silversmith. And yet unquestionably he'd said Mr. Worcester. I was still pondering, like Billy-O, and nowhere near spiking a plausible solution to the mystery when the door opened and the ghost of Jeeves entered, carrying a breakfast tray. Chapter 8 I say the ghost of Jeeves, because in that first awful moment, that was what I had the apparition docketed as. The words, what ho, a spectre, trembled on my lips, and I reacted rather like the heroine of Murder at Greystone Grange, on discovering that the thing had come to Doss in a room. I don't know if you have ever seen a ghost, but the general effect is to give you quite a start. Then the scent of bacon floated to the nostrils, and feeling that it was improbable that a wraith would be horsing around the place with dishes of eggs and bee, I calmed down a bit. That is to say, I stopped upsetting the tea and was able to stutter. It is true that all I said was Jeeves, but that wasn't such bad going for one whose tongue has so recently been tangled up in the uvula, besides cleaving to the roof of the mouth. He dumped the tray on my lap, "'Good morning, sir,' he said. "'I fancied you would possibly wish to enjoy your breakfast "'in the privacy of your apartment, "'rather than make one of the party in the dining-room.' "'Cognizant as I was of the fact that in the dining-room "'there would be five ants, one of them deaf, one of them dotty, "'one of them Dame Daphne Winkworth, "'and all of them totally unfit for human consumption on an empty stomach, "'I applauded the kindly gesture. "'All the more heartily, because it had just occurred to me 
that in a house like this, where things were sure to be run on old-fashioned lines, rather than in a manner of keeping with the trend of modern thought, the butler probably waited at the breakfast table. Does he, I asked? Does Silversmith minister to the revellers at the morning meal? Yes, sir. My God! I said, paling beneath the tan. What a man, Jeeves! Sir? Your Uncle Charlie! Ah, yes, sir. A forceful personality. Forceful is correct. What's that thing of Shakespeare's about someone having an eye like Mother's? An eye like Mars. To threaten and command is possibly the quotation for which you are groping, sir. That's right. Uncle Charlie has an eye like that. You really call him Uncle Charlie? Yes, sir. Amazing. To me, to think of him as Uncle Charlie is like thinking of him as Jimmy or Reggie, or for that matter, Bertie. In your younger days, did he dundle you on his knee? Quite frequently, sir. And you didn't quail? You must have been a child of blood and iron. I addressed myself to the platter once more. Extraordinarily good bacon, this Jeeves. Home cured, I understand, sir. And made no doubt from contented pigs. Kippers, too, not to mention toast, marmalade, and, of course, my senses deceive me in apple. Say what you will of Deverell Hall. Its hospitality is lavish. I don't know if you have ever noticed it, Jeeves, but a good-spirited kipper first thing in the morning seems to put heart into you. Very true, sir, though I myself am more partial to a slice of ham. For some moments we discussed the relative merits of ham and kippers as buckers up of the morale, there being much, of course, to be said on both sides. And then I touched on something which I had been meaning to touch on earlier. I can't think how it had slipped my mind. Jeez, I said. I knew there was something I wanted to ask you. What in the name of everything bloodsome are you doing here? I fancy that you might possibly be curious on that point, sir. And I was about to volunteer an explanation. I have come here in attendance on Mr. Finknottle. Permit me, sir. He retrieved the slab of kipper, which a quick jerk of the wrist had caused me to send flying from the fork and replace it on the dish. I stared at him wide-eyed as the expression went. Mr. Finknottle? Yes, sir. But Gussie's not here. Yes, sir. We arrived at a somewhat late hour last night. A sudden blinding light flashed upon me. You mean it was Gussie to whom Uncle Charlie was referring when he said that Mr. Worcester had punched the time clock? I'm here saying I'm Gussie, and now Gussie has blown in saying he's me? Precisely, sir. It is a curious and perhaps somewhat complex situation that has been precipitated. You're telling me, Jeeves! Only the fact that by doing so, I should have upset the tray prevented me turning my face to the wall. When Esmond Haddock and our exchangers over the port had spoken of the times that try men's souls, he hadn't a notion of what the times that try men's souls can really be, if they spit on their hands and get right down to it. I levered up a forkful of kipper and passed it absently over the larynx, endeavouring to adjust the facilities to a setup which even the most intrepid would have had to admit was a honey. But how did Gussie get out of the stir? The magistrate decided on second thoughts to substitute a fine for the prison sentence, sir. What made him do that? Possibly the reflection that the quality of mercy is not strained, sir. You mean it droppeth as the gentle rain from heaven? Precisely, sir. Upon the place beneath. His worship would no doubt have taken into consideration the fact that it blesseth him that gives and him that takes and becomes the throned monarch better than his crown. I mused. Yes, there was something in that. What did he soak him for? Five quid? Yes, sir. And Gussie brassed up and was free? Yes, sir. I put my finger on the knob. Why, I said. I thought I had him there, but I hadn't. Where a lesser man would have shuffled his feet and twiddled his thumbs and mumbled, Yes, I see what you mean. That is the problem, is it not? He had his explanation all ready to serve and dished it up without batting an eyelid. It was the only course to pursue, sir. On the one hand, her ladyship, your aunt, was most emphatic in her desire that you should visit the hall, and on the other, Miss Bassett was equally insistent on Mr. Finknottle doing so. 
In the event of either of you failing to arrive, inquiries would have been instituted with disastrous results. To take but one aspect of the matter, Miss Bassett is expecting to receive daily letters from Mr. Finknottle, giving her all the gossip of the hall and describing in detail his life there. These will, of course, have to be written on hall notepaper and postmarked King Deverell. True! You speak sooth, Jeeves. I never thought of that. I swallowed a sombre chunk of toast and marmalade. I was thinking how easily all this complex stuff could have been avoided if only the beak had had the sense to find Gussie in the first place instead of as an afterthought. I have said it before and I will say it again. All magistrates are asses. Show me a magistrate and I will show you a fathead. I started on the apple. So, here we are. Yes, sir. I'm Gussie and Gussie's me. Yes, sir. And ceaseless vigilance will be required if we are not to gum the game. We shall be walking on eggshells, Jeeves. A very trenchant figure, sir. I finished the apple and lit a thoughtful cigarette. Well, I suppose it had to be, I said. But lay off the Marcus Aurelius stuff, because I don't think I could stand it if you talk about it all being part of the great web. How's Gussie taking this thing? Not blithely, sir. I should describe him as disgruntled. I learned from Mr. Peerbright. Oh, you've seen cat's meat? Yes, sir, in the servants' hall. He was helping Queenie, the parlour maid, with her crossword puzzle. He informed me that he had contrived to obtain an interview with Miss Peerbright and had apprised her of your reluctance to play the part of Pat in the Hibernian entertainment at the concert and that Miss Peerbright fully appreciated your position and said that now that Mr. Finknortel has arrived, he would, of course, sustain the role. Mr. Peerbright has seen Mr. Finknortel and informed him of the arrangement, and it is this that has caused Mr. Finknortel to become disgruntled. He shrinks from the task? Yes, sir. He is also somewhat exercised in his mind by what he has heard the ladies of the hall saying with regard to... My doings? Yes, sir. The dog? Yes, sir. The port? Yes, sir. And the hello, hello, a hunting we will go? Yes, sir. I washed out a remorseful puff of smoke. Yes, I said, I'm afraid I haven't given Gussie a very good send-off. Quite inadvertently, I fear, I have established him in the eyes of mine hostesses as one of those whited sepulchres which try to kid the public that they drink nothing but orange juice, and the moment the public's back is turned, start doing that lost weekend stuff with the port. Of course, I could put up a pretty good case for myself. Esmond Haddock thrust a decanter on me, and I was dying of thirst. You wouldn't blame a snowbound traveller in the Alps for accepting a drop of brandy at the hands of a St. Bernard dog. Still, one hopes that they will keep it under their hats and not pass it along to Miss Bassett. One doesn't want spanners bunched into Gussie's romance. We were silent for a moment, musing on what the harvest would be, were anything to cause Madeline Bassett to become de-Gussied. Then I changed a distasteful subject. Talking of romances, I suppose Catsby's confided in you about his. Yes, sir. I thought he would. Amazing, the way all these birds come to you and sob out their troubles on your chest. I find it most gratifying, sir and am always eager to lend such assistance as may lie within my power. One desires to give satisfaction. Shortly after your departure yesterday, Mr. Peerbright devoted some little time to an exposition of the problems confronting him. It was after learning the facts that I ventured to suggest that he should take my place here as your attendant. I wish one of you had thought to tip me off with a telegram. I should have been spared a nasty shock. The last thing one wants on top of what might be termed a drinking bout is to have a changeling ring himself in on you without warning. You'd look pretty silly yourself if you came into my room one morning with a cup of tea after a thick night and found Ernie Bevan or someone propped up in the bed. When you saw Catsmeat just now, did he tell you stop the presses? Sir? About Esmond Haddock and Corky. Ah, yes, sir. He informed me of what you had said to him with reference to Mr. Haddock's unswerving devotion to Miss Peerbright. He appeared greatly relieved. He feels that the principal obstacle to his happiness has now been removed. Yes, cats meet sitting pretty. 
One wishes one could say the same of poor old Esmond. You think Miss Peerbright does not reciprocate Mr. Haddock's sentiments, sir? Oh, she reciprocates them all right. She freely admits that he is a lodestar of her life. And you're probably saying to yourself that in these cirques everything should be hunky-dory. I mean, if she's the lodestar of his life and he's the lodestar of hers, the thing ought to be in the bag, right? But you're wrong, and so is Esmond Haddock. His view, poor deluded clam, is that he will make such a wail of a hit with the song that he's singing at the concert that when she hears the audience cheering him to the echo, she will say, Oh, Esmond, and fling herself into his arms. Not a hope. No, sir. Not a hope, Jeeves. There's a snag. The trouble is that she refuses to consider the idea of hitching up with him unless he defies his aunts, and he very naturally gets the vapours of the mere idea. It is what I have sometimes heard described as an impasse. Why does the young lady wish Mr. Haddock to defy his aunt, sir? She says he has allowed them to oppress him from childhood, and it's time he threw off the yoke. She wants him to show her that he is a man of intrepid courage. It's the old dragon gag. In the days when knights were bold, as you probably know, girls used to hound fellows into going out and fighting dragons. I expect your old pal child Roland had it happen to him a dozen times. But dragons are one thing and ants are another. I have no doubt that Esmond Haddock would spring to the task of taking on a fire-breathing dragon, but there isn't the remotest chance of him ever standing up to Dame Daphne Winkworth and the Misses Charlotte, Emmeline, Harriet, and Myrtle Deverell and make them play ball. I wonder, sir. What do you mean you wonder, Jeeves? It crossed my mind as a possibility, sir, that were Mr. Haddock's performance at the concert to be the success he anticipates, his attitude might become more resolute. I have not myself had the opportunity of studying the young gentleman's psychology, but from what my Uncle Charlie tells me, I am convinced that he is one of those gentlemen on whom popular acclamation might have sensational effects. Mr. Haddock's life has been, as you say, a repressed one, and he has no doubt a very marked inferiority complex. The cheers of the multitude frequently act like a powerful drug upon young gentlemen with inferiority complexes. I've begun to grasp the gist of this. You mean that if he makes a hit, he will get it up his nose to such an extent that he will be able to look his ants in the eye and make them wilt? Precisely, sir. You will recall the case of Mr. Little. Golly, yes, that's right. Bingo became a changed man, didn't he? Jeeves, I believe you've got something. At least the theory which I have advanced is a tenable one, sir. It's more than tenable, it's a pip. Then what you've got to do is to strain every nerve to see that he makes it a hit. What are those things people have? Sir? Opera singers and people like that. You mean a clack, sir? That's right. The word was on the tip of my tongue. He must be provided with a clack. It will be your task, Jeeves, to move about the village, dropping a word here, standing a beer there, till the whole community is impressed with the necessity of cheering Esmond Haddock's song till their eyes bubble. I can leave this to you, right? Certainly, sir. I will attend to the matter. Fine. And now I suppose I ought to be getting up and seeing Gussie. There are probably one or two points he will want to discuss. Is there a ruined mill around here? Not to my knowledge, sir. Well, any landmark where you could tell him to meet me. I don't want to roam around the house and grounds looking for him. My aim is rather to sneak down the back stairs and skirt around the garden via the shrubberies. You follow me, Jeeves? Perfectly, sir. I would suggest that I arrange with Mr. Finknottle to meet you in, say, an hour's time outside the local post office. Right, I said. Outside the post office in an hour or sixty minutes. And now, Jeeves, if you will be so good as to turn on the refreshing bath. Chapter 9 What with one thing or another, singing a bit too much in the bath and so on, I was about five minutes behind scheduled time in reaching the post office. When I got there, I found Gussie already at the tryst. Jeeves, in speaking of this Finknoddle, had, if you remember, described him as disgruntled, and it was plain at a glance that the passage of time had done nothing to gruntle him. The eyes behind their horn-rimmed spectacles were burning with fury and resentment and all that sort of thing. He looked like a peevish halibut. 
In moment of emotion, Gussie's resemblance to some marine monster always becomes accentuated. Well, he said, starting in without so much as a what-ho. This is a pretty state of things. It seemed to me that a cheery, pep-giving word would be in order. I proceeded accordingly to shoot it across, assenting to his opinion that the state of things was pretty. I urged him to keep the tail up, pointing out that though the storm clouds might lower, he was better off at Deverell Hall than he would have been in a dark dungeon with dripping walls and a platoon of resident rats, if that's where they put fellow who had been given 14 days without the option at Bosher Street Police Court. He replied curtly that he entirely disagreed with me. I would have greatly preferred prison, he said. When you're in prison, you don't have people calling you Mr. Worcester. How do you suppose I feel knowing that everybody thinks I'm you? This startled me, I confess. Of all the things I had to worry about, the one that was gashing me like a knife most was the thought that the populace beholding Gussie were under the impression that there stood Bertram Worcester. When I reflected that the little world at King's Deverell would go to its grave believing that Bertram Worcester was an undersized gargoyle who looked like Lester de Pester in the comic strip in one of those New York newspapers, the iron entered my soul. It was a bit of a jar to learn that Gussie was suffering the same spiritual agonies. I don't know if you're aware, he proceeded, what your reputation is in these parts. In case you're under any illusions, let me inform you that your name is Mud. Those women at breakfast were drawing their skirts away as I passed. They shivered when I spoke to them. From time to time I would catch them looking at me in a way that would have wounded a smash-and-grab man. And, as if that wasn't bad enough, you seem in a single evening to have made my name mud too. What's all this I hear about you getting tight last night and singing hunting songs? I didn't get tight, Gussie. Just pleasantly mellowed, as you might say. And I sang hunting songs because my host seemed to wish it. One has to humour one's host. So they mentioned that, did they? They mentioned it all right. It was the chief topic of conversation at the breakfast table. And what's going to happen if they mention that to Madeline? I advise start denial. It won't work. It might, I said, for I'd been giving a good deal of thought to the matter and was feeling more optimistic than I had been. After all, what can they prove? Madeline's godmother said she came into the dining room and found you on a chair, waving a decanter and singing a hunting we will go. True, we can see to that. But who is to say that that decanter was not emptied exclusively by Esmond Haddock? Who, you must remember, was on the table, also singing a hunting we will go, and urging his horse on with a banana. I feel convinced that should the affair come to Madeline's ears, you can get away with it with stout denial. He pondered. Perhaps you're right. But at the same time, I wish you'd be more careful. The whole thing has been most annoying and upsetting. Still, I said feeling that it was worth trying. It's part of the Great Web, what? Great Web? One of Marcus Aurelius's cracks. He said, does up before you. It is good. It is part of the destiny of the universe. Ordained for you from the beginning. All that befalls you is part of the Great Web. From the brusque manner in which he damned and blasted Marcus Aurelius, I gathered that just as had happened when G sprang it on me, the gag had failed to bring balm. I hadn't had much hope that it would. I doubt, as a matter of fact, if Marcus Aurelius's material is ever the stuff to give the troops at a moment when they have just stopped their toe on the brick of fate. You want to wait till the agony is abated. To ease the strain, I changed the subject, asking him if he'd been surprised to find cat's meat in residence at the hall, and immediately became aware that I had but poured kerosene on the flames. Heated though his observations on Marcus Aurelius had been, they were madness itself compared to what he had to say about cat's meat. It was understandable, of course. If a fellow has forced you against your better judgment to go waiting in the Trafalgar Square fountain at five in the morning, rooting your trousers and causing you to be pinched and jugged and generally put through the machinery of the law, no doubt you will find yourself coming round to the view that what he needs is disemboweling with a blunt bread knife. This, among other things, was what Gussie hoped some day to be able to do to cat's meat, if all went well, and as I say, one could follow the train of thought. Presently, having said all he could think of on the topic of cat's meat, 
he turned, as I had been rather expecting he would, to that of the Crosstalk Act, of which the other was the originator and the producer. What's all this Peerbright was saying about something he called a Crosstalk Act? He asked, and I saw that we had reached a point in the exchanges where suavity in the honeyed word would be needed. Ah, yes, he mentioned that to you, did he not? It's an item on the program of the concert, which his sister is impresarioing at the village hall shortly. I was to have played Pat in it, but owing to the changed circumstances, you will now sustain the role. Will I? We'll see about that. What the devil is the damn thing? Haven't you seen it? Pongo Twizzleton and Barmy Phipps do it every year at the Drone Smoker. I'll never go to the Drone Smoker. Oh, well, it's a... How shall I put it? It's what is known as a crosstalk act. The principals are a couple of Irishmen named Pat and Mike, and they come on and... But I have the script here, I said, producing it. If you glance through it, you'll get the idea. He took the script and studied it with sullen frowns. Watching him, I realized what a ghastly job it must be writing plays. I mean, having to hand over your little effort to a hard-faced manager and start shuffling your feet while he glares at it as if it hurt him in a tender spot preparatory to pushing it back at you with a cut, it stinks. Who wrote this? Asked Gussie as he turned the final page. When I told him that Catsmeat was the author, he said he might have guessed. Throughout his perusal, he'd been snorting at intervals, and he snorted again, a good bit louder, as if he were amalgamating about six knots into one. The thing is absolute drivel. It has no dramatic coherence. It lacks motivation and significant form. Who are these two men supposed to be? I told you, a couple of Irishmen named Bat and Mike. Well, perhaps you can explain what their social position is, for it is frankly beyond me. Pat, for instance, appears to move in the very highest circles, for he describes himself as dining at Buckingham Palace, and yet his wife takes in lodgers. I see what you mean. Odd. Inexplicable. Is it credible that a man of his class would be invited to dinner at Buckingham Palace, especially as he is apparently completely without social savoir-faire? At this dinner party, to which he alludes, he relates how the Queen asked him if he would like some maligatoni, and he, thinking that there was nothing else coming, had six helpings, with the result that, to quote his words, he spent the rest of the evening sitting in the corner full of soup. And in describing the incident, he prefaces his remarks at several points with the expression Begora and faith in Begob. Irishmen don't talk like that. Have you ever read Singer's Riders to the Sea? Get hold of it and study it. And if you can show me a single character in it who says faith in Begob, I'll give you a shilling. Irishmen are poets. They talk about their souls and mist and so on. They say things like, an evening like this, it makes me wish I was back in County Clare, watching the cows and the tall grass. He turned the pages frowningly, his nose wrinkled, as if it had detected some unpleasant smell. It brought back to me the old days at Melvin House, Bramley on the Sea, when I used to take my English essay to be blue-penciled by the Reverend Aubrey Upjohn. Here's another bit of incoherent raving. My sister's in the ballet... You say your sister's in the ballet? Yes, Begora. My sister's in the ballet. What does your sister do in the ballet? She comes rushing in, then she goes rushing out. What does she have to rush like that for? Faith in Begob because it's a Russian ballet. It simply doesn't make sense. And now we come to something else that is beyond me. The word bus. After the line... Because it's a Russian ballet, and in other places throughout the script, the word bus appears in brackets. It conveys nothing to me. Can you explain it? It's short for business. That's why you hit Mike with your umbrella, to show the audience that there had been a joke. Gussie started. Are these things jokes? Yes. I see, I see. Well, of course, that throws a different light on. He paused and eyed me narrowly. Did you say I'm supposed to strike my colleague with an umbrella? That's right. And if I understood Peerbright correctly, 
The other performer in this extraordinary production is the local policeman? That's right! The whole thing is impossible and utterly out of the question, said Gussie vehemently. Have you any idea what happens when you hit a policeman with an umbrella? I did so on emerging from the fountain in Trafalgar Square, and I certainly do not intend to do it again. A sort of grey humour came into his face, as if he had been taking a quick look into a past which he hoped to forget. Well, let me put it to you quite straight, Worcester, as to what my stand in this matter is. I shall not say Begora, I shall not say Faith in Begob, I shall not assault policemen with an umbrella. In short, I absolutely and positively refuse to have the slightest association with this degraded buffoonery. Wait till I meet Miss Peerbright. I'll tell her a thing or two. I'll show her she can't play fast and loose with human dignity like this. He was about to speak further, but at this point his voice died away in a sort of gurgle. I saw his eyes bulge. Glancing around, I perceived Corky approaching. She was accompanied by Sam Goldwyn, and was looking, as is her wont, like a million dollars. Gowned in some clingy material was accentuated rather than hid her graceful outlines, if you know what I mean. I was delighted to see her. With Gussie in this non-cooperative mood, digging his feet and refusing to play ball, like Balaam's ass, it seemed to me that precisely what was needed was the woman's touch. To decide to introduce them and leave her to take on the job of melting his iron front was with me the work of a moment. I had high hopes that she would be able to swing the deal. Though differing from my Aunt Agatha in almost every possible respect, Corky has this in common with that outstanding scourge. She is authoritative. When she wants you to do a thing, you find yourself doing it. This has been so from her earliest years. I remember her on one occasion, at our mutual dancing class, handing me an antique orange, a blue and yellow mass of pips and mildew, and bidding me to bung it at our instructress, who had incurred her displeasure for some reason which has escaped my recollection. And I did it without a murmur, though knowing full well how bitter the reckoning would be. Hoy, I said, eluding the cheesehound's attempt to place his front paws on my shoulders and strop his tongue on my face. I jerked a thumb. Gussie, I said. Corky's face lit up in a tickle-to-death manner. She proceeded immediately to turn on the charm. Oh, so this is Mr. Finknoddle. How do you do, Mr. Finknoddle? I am so glad to see you, Mr. Finknoddle. How lucky meeting you. I wanted to talk to you about the act. We've just been having a word or two on that subject, I said, and Gussie's kicking a bit at playing Pat. Oh, no. I thought you might like to reason with him. I'll leave that to you, I said, and biffed off. Looking around as I turned the corner, I saw that she had attached herself with one slim hand to the lapel of Gussie's coat, and with the other was making wide, appealing gestures, indicating to the most vapid and irreflective observer that she was giving him treatment A. Well pleased, I made my way back to the hall, keeping an eye skinned for prowling ants, and one through without disaster to my room. I was enjoying a thoughtful smoke there, and about half an hour later, Gussie came in, and I could see right away that he was not the morose, sullen Finknoddle who had so uncompromisingly panned the daylights out of Pat and Mike in the course of our recent get-together. His bearing was buoyant. His face glowed. He was wearing in his buttonhole a flower which had not been there before. Hello there, Bertie, he said. I say, Bertie. Why didn't you tell me that Miss Peerbright was Cora Starr, the film actress? I have long been one of her warmest admirers. What a delightful girl she is, is she not? And how unlike her brother, whom I consider, and always shall consider, England's leading louse. She has made me see this crosstalk act in an entirely new light. I thought she might. It's extraordinary that a girl as pretty as that should also have a razor-keen intelligence and that amazing way of putting her arguments with a crystal clarity which convinces you in an instant that she is right in every respect. Yes, Cork is a persuasive young gumboil, 
I would prefer that you did not speak of her as a gumboil. Corky, eh? That's what you call her, is it? A charming name. What was the outcome of your conference? Are you going to do the act? Oh, yes. It's all settled. She overcame my objections entirely. We ran through the script after you had left us, and she quite brought me round to her view that there is nothing in the least degrading in this simple, wholesome form of humour. Hokum, yeah, but, as she pointed out, good theatre, she's convinced I shall go over big. You'll knock em cold. I'm sorry I can't play Pat myself. A good thing, probably. I doubt if you are the type. Of course I'm the type, I retorted hotly. I should have given a sensational performance. Corky thinks not. She was telling me how thankful she was that you had stepped out and I had taken over. She said the part wants broad, robust treatment and that you would have played it too far down. It's a part that calls for personality and the most precise timing. She said that the moment she saw me, she felt that here was the ideal Pat. Girls with her experience can tell in a second. I gave it up. You can't reason with hams. In 20 minutes of Corky's society seemed to have turned Augustus Ficknoddle from a blameless newt fancier into a pronounced ham as ever drank small ports of bodegas and called people laddie. And another half jiffy I felt he would be addressing me as laddie. Well, it's no use talking about it, I said, because I could never have taken the thing on. Madeline wouldn't have approved of her affianced appearing in public in a green beard. No, she's an odd girl. It seemed to me that I might wipe the silly smile off his face by reminding him of something he appeared to have forgotten. What about Dobbs? Eh? When I last heard from you, you were a bit agitated at the prospect of having to slosh Police Constable Dobbs with your umbrella. Oh, Dobbs. He's out. He's been given his notice. He came along when we were rehearsing and started to read Mike's lines, but he was hopeless. No technique, no personality and he wouldn't take direction, kept arguing every point with the management, until finally Corky got heated and began raising her voice, and he got heated and began raising his voice, and the upshot was that that dog of hers got excited no doubt by the uproar and bit him on the leg. Good Lord! Yes, it created an unpleasant atmosphere. Corky put the animal's case extremely well, pointing out that it had probably been pushed around by policemen since it was a slip of a puppy, and so was merely fulfilling a legitimate aspiration if it took an occasional nip at one. But Dobbs refused to accept her view that the offence was one calling for a mere reprimand. He took the creature into custody and is keeping it at the police station until he's been able to ascertain whether this was his first bite. Apparently a dog that has only had one bite is in a strong position legally. Sam Goldwyn bit Silversmith last night. Oh, did he? Well, if that comes out, I'm afraid counsel for the prosecution will have a talking point. But to go on with my story, Corky incensed, and quite rightly, by Dobbs's intransigent attitude threw him out of the act and is getting her brother to play the part. There is the risk, of course, that the vicar will recognise him, which would lead to an unfortunate situation. She thinks the green beard will form a sufficient disguise. I am looking forward to having Pierbright as a partner. I can think of few men whom it would give me more genuine pleasure to hit on the head with an umbrella. Said Gussie broodingly, adding that the first time his weapon connected with Catsmeat's head, the latter would think he'd been struck by a thunderbolt. It was plain that time the great healer would have to put in a lot of solid work before he forgot and forgave. But I can't stay here talking. Corky has asked me to lunch at the vicarage, and I must be getting along. I just looked in to give you those poems. Those what? Those Christopher Robin poems. Oh, here they are. He handed me a slim volume of verse, and I gave it the perplexed eye. What's this for? You recite them at the concert. The ones marked with a cross. I was to have recited them. Madeline made a great point of it. 
You know how fond she is of Christopher Robin poems. But now, of course, we have switched acts. I don't mind telling you, I feel extremely relieved. There's one about the little blighter going hoppity hoppity hop, which, well, as I say, I feel extremely relieved. The slim volume fell from my nerveless fingers, and I goggled at him. But dash it! It's no good saying but dash it, Worcester. Do you think I didn't say but dash it when she formed these nauseating productions on me? You've got to do them, she insists. The first thing she will want to know is how they went. But the tough eggs at the back row will rush the stage and lynch me. I shouldn't wonder. Still... You've got one consolation. What's that? The thought that all that befalls you is part of the great web. Ha ha ha. Said Gussie and exited smiling. And so the first day of my sojourn to Deverell Hall wore to a close. Fall to the brim of V-shaped depressions and unsettled outlooks.